I had intended to start this week's episode with some thoughts on the ways in which ancient mycorrhizal networks linking plants and fungus may actually be operating over deep time, delivering things and people to each other exactly at the moment that they need it in a way that sustains the entire organism of planet Earth. Instead, I'm going to start with a different kind of delivery network. Steam heaters. Minutes before this recording was set to begin, Angela, who has taken on the maintenance responsibilities for the building, was in our apartment using her calloused hands to crank back the scalding hot-to-the-touch dial on the radiator. Now, I would never have turned it on, because while humanity can only exist within a very specific temperature range, I can only survive in a tiny sliver of that. Dip much above 72 degrees and I wilt or instantly fall into a deep sleep. Down the ladder, I prefer to have a mug of hot mushroom tea a few notches above freezing. Now, I'm also blessed by an extreme sensitivity to sound. I have long loathed the screech of bare hands on jeans or the ear-splitting smoosh of socks on carpet. There are certain frequencies which seem to get under my skin and then lift the skin from my bones and take up residence in that horrible void. And my heater was making a high-pitched whine that was moving into that zone. So I had called Angela to try and fix the whine, but instead she brought in the heating guy, Carl, who told me the sound was coming from a different place. It wasn't. And he cranked the heater all the way up to quote-unquote relieve pressure. Well, as soon as they left, and in a panic, sweating through my good turtleneck, my long pandemic tresses falling in my face, I called Angela on the commune walkie-talkies and pleaded with her to come back and turn down the heat. I'm so thankful she did, but of course, after all that, I was right there where I started, with a whiny heat pipe, and now with an extra boost of steam warming my podcasting corner. It did make me curious about how we ended up with these ragingly hot apartments in New York to begin with. And chasing our curiosity is something we explore at length when we open the portal and enter the climate-controlled realm that is the Deep Night. Friends, hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, and I'm so pleased to be your host, guide, and guru of this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. It is an unsettled time, and one look no further than the oily surface of our Gowanee to know it. With the recent fall rains, the Gowanus is splashing and surging beneath the Carroll Street Bridge, lashing the shores of the parking lot at Lowe's. We move through these moments, though don't we? We emerge calmer on the other side, and I hope we get there. But back to this heat thing for just a minute. Because my guest today takes a fascinating approach to the issue she tackles on her many podcasts, I thought, hey, what if I did the same thing here and take something from my world and dig a little deeper, something that's stuck in my craw? Well, see how it got there. So with the question of why are so many New York apartments so hot, I remembered reading an article by Patrick Sisson in Bloomberg this summer that provided some clues and a surprising link to the current day. 
Now, the reason there's widespread use of steam heating systems in New York City, where apartments this time of year are notoriously hot because of it, is in no small part due to the global pandemic of 1918. Back then, on account of the correct belief that outdoor air was key to keeping the airborne virus at bay, the city recommended that windows be kept open to ensure a steady flow of fresh air. Yes, just as my mother told me, always going on about a cross breeze. Well, that was a means to avoid the deadly dangers of contagion spread through spent breath, as it was called. Oh, well, when winter hit, they had not gotten a thing under control. Sounds familiar. So they suggested that the windows stay open. Now, steam-heated radiators became uh, popular as a way to keep a room warm even in January, February, in New York City, with all the windows open. By design, they put out more heat than was required. And the regulations around steam heat were enshrined in the building codes. And given how much of New York City was built between 1900 and 1930, almost 75%. Well, most of those overactive heaters are still clanging and hissing away today. Isn't that something? I mean, maybe after a hundred years or so, we can rip these things out and put in better heaters and give every apartment control of our own climate. I think it's going to be infrastructure week on the commune pretty soon. So my little issue here, you see, in 2020 is connected to the wellness movement of the early 20th century and the conditions of a global pandemic uh, that was happening then still informs the global pandemic of today. Oh, I so love knowing that and knowing things. And though I was still a little rattled from the heat and the nerves and the sweat, I enjoyed talking about the process of curious pursuit with my guest tonight, writer, podcaster, and producer Avery Truffleman. Avery's the host of some of the most consequential and, I'd say, important podcasts for the last several years, deploying a keen sense of how things are connected with a genuine fascination with the way the world works and how we got to this current moment, be it through fashion, architecture, utopias, or cultural dynamics. You can hear her substantial and fine work through the podcast Nice Try, Articles of Interest, or her ongoing work with The Cut. Now we're talking about connections, getting to the origins of things, so let's travel ever further into The Deep Night with my guest, Avery Truffleman. Avery Truffleman, welcome to The Deep Night. It's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, for some reason, perhaps sending, uh, sensing a bit of a shared abundance of curiosity, I have, uh, I'm feeling a kind of kinship I rarely feel with a guest, even before we've uh, begun to have a conversation. And I, I feel like the cosmic vibrations are strong here today. Mm, mm, I'm totally, I'm vibing. I feel this too. I feel this Yes. Too. Good, good. Now, first, uh, and I like to ask this question just at the top, you probably have more knowledge about this subject than anybody else has been on the show. So I know you're going to respond to this question with a great deal of understanding and care. And the question is, would you be interested in joining an intentional community that I'm starting here in my Brooklyn apartment building? Absolutely not. But thank you so much for the kind, kind invitation. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your candor and honesty. <laughs> Listen, it's a pandemic. No time, no time for, uh, no time for bullshit anymore. You know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Cut to it. Get right to it. I understand. Have you ever been drawn to the idea of communal living? I have. I have. I have. And you know, I, there are moments when I let myself dream about maybe 
living with some friends somewhere in a, you know, series of geodesic domes that all connect to each other. But, you know, it's really hard to make it work. It requires a lot of a lot of communication. Like what it comes down to at the end of the day is politics and people don't like politics. People don't like to have it out with each other. And that's what it involves. That's right. Now, of course, the reason I'm sort of asking you of those questions is because <laughs> you have the podcast Nice Try, which I was do. about utopians, uh, utopias. And uh, as you're saying, do you think that that, that issue of politics, uh, of power, that's the reason why they all fail? Uh, well, there, that's a great question. There's There are lots of reasons why various utopias don't work out. And I just want to acknowledge that I'm sure there are many who do. I know the number of people who live in communal ways on communes, and it does work out. I think it is possible. But in the case studies that I looked at over the, you know, eight-part series called Nice Try, so much of it, they were, these utopias were located across time, across the world, with varying degrees of money, with varying degrees of power. And for so many of them, it came down to governance because by and large, these are people who didn't like the country or the world that they found themselves in, decided they wanted a better future and decided they wanted to get away. And then they didn't realize that, like, you still you still need to govern each other. You need to have mutually agreed upon rules. And um, that either means having really long multi-hour communal meetings and disagreements and, you know, organizing committees and a lot of time, or it means blindly following one person, which in some ways is the easiest uh, way to be governed is to like, well, I don't want to make decisions and I don't want to go to meetings. I'm just, I agree with this one person. I'm going to let them tell me what to do. But that is also the most easily corruptible. And it has happened. uh, It is not unusual for these leaders to stray from their original vision and the power can become corrosive. So it's hard. It's hard. There's no easy fix. For sure. And I know that if this one that I'm a part of right now goes under, I'm going to blame Kevin in that 2L (laughs) because he knows why. Uh, But you also bring up that point. I mean, the idea of starting the whole thing when we've already had, you know, we're we're already well along in humanity and we've had a lot of attempts to do things. I feel like we're at a point of refined systems of interaction to to go back to the beginning and start to dole up responsibilities. It's daunting. It's daunting. Oh, that's interesting you put it that way because, you know, the first episode of the series is actually about the founding of the United States, which in so many ways was a utopian experiment. And the narrative we love to cling to, you know, it's almost Thanksgiving. We love to talk about the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock, but that wasn't that was not the first attempt at building a utopian community for of Europeans building a utopian community in the United States. I mean, that is the first first one was Roanoke, which got wiped off the face of the earth and disappeared and no one knows what happened to it. Yikes. Right. And Nobody then, knows. No one knows. And <laughs> it's then a ghost colony. And then the first lasting colony that Europeans set up in the United States was Jamestown. And we love to cling to the narrative of uh, Plymouth Rock because those were families, those were refugees, you know, they 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 came to just try to, we like to say they came to try to build a better life for themselves, but Jamestown was like a bunch of dudes trying to make a buck. That was a company, and they had come to plunder, and they had come to get theirs, and they had come to make money in the name of the crown. And also a lot of this narrative was kind of amended after the Civil War because 
the um the story of Jamestown is the story of the South. And the yes. story of of uh the Mayflower is the North. It's like the you know, proving the the inherent justice and goodness of the refugees who were living in the North. So this is all just to say that in a lot of ways, you know, sure, one could argue that we have been attempting to form a more perfect union for many hundreds of years now, even though that's not very long. It's longer than most uh, lives. But it was so flawed from the jump. And there's so much work that needs to be done. And I think there is it's hard to dissuade ourselves of this notion like, well, if only we had a blank slate and could start again we will avoid these problems. But that's not true. We've seen it over and over and over again. Like just because you have a fresh start, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be problems. So it's, I think it's more important to like try to fix the problems that we already have uh, developed and been working on because living with a whole bunch of people and trying to come to some form of mutually agreed upon rules is just always, always, always going to be frustrating, whether it's, you know, billions of people or 12 people. Absolutely. I'm living that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. Yes. Uh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm mansplaining this to you. You know this from your experience. <laughs> oh, no. It's good to have uh, another, uh, to have it reflected back at me. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, some of the doubts that I have. Anyhow, uh, well, uh, it is a tricky time whether you're starting a new community or you're just trying to do podcasting. And uh, we sort of hinted at this earlier when we were just saying hello to each other, but you're such an audio pro. Uh, I wanted to ask you how you're dealing with this moment that we're in right now from a technical standpoint, because if you are like me, and I imagine you are, uh, you value high-quality audio, which is almost impossible to achieve in this moment. You know what? I don't value high-quality audio. <laughs> Well, no, I don't like <laughs> shitty audio. I don't like bad quality audio. I like people to be understood. But I think there is nothing wrong. I think the the audio quality that you can get on your, your voice memo app on your phone, that's great. That's totally, totally lovely. And I yeah. love that this is opening up the field to a variety of different experience levels. I think when I was starting out in audio, I was very intimidated by, you know, the 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 gearheads, like the dudes who told you you needed a $3,000 microphone, blah, 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 blah. And now, I mean, it's really just whatever is passable quality is totally, totally <laughs> fine. And I think it allows, especially because I work for this, uh, I work for New York Magazine now, and I work with a lot of magazine writers kind of collaborating on stories together. And they don't have an audio home setup. But the thing that I love about this moment is it doesn't matter. There's there's this freedom for them to use whatever tools they have, whether it's re recording on QuickTime on their computer or on their phone. Uh, we just make it work. And it's scrappy. And I like it. I enjoy it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's that element to it. I guess what I also, it feeds into my uh, uh, emotional state, though, as I prepare for these conversations, oh, because yes. I'm still, even after 12 years of doing this thing, I still get a little anxious when I'm about to talk to someone. And uh, now I'm not only anxious about, oh, is this going to go okay? Yes. I'm thinking <laughs> about Wi-Fi signal strength. Yes. And yes. that added layer, it, uh, it it's more than I wanted to have to deal with at this point. <laughs> Although this. it's it's I find it's like a real uh, conversational adhesive. I feel like it really bonds you together. I think before I felt like I was just coming over to someone like Ursula the Sea Witch and taking their voice and then I was going to use it for my own means. It felt very like Janet Malcolm, journalist in the murdery. And now 
I just feel like we're all co-creating this thing. We're all on this rickety bridge together and sort of bonded by it. Although maybe I'm just, this is a story that I have to tell myself because everything is very bad and <laughs> I'm trying to find, <laughs> trying to find the silver linings where I can. Absolutely. Which uh, brings me to my next question is how are you calming yourselves these days? Do you enjoy potions and tinctures or what are you doing? I do enjoy potions and tinctures. I've spent just enough time in the San Francisco Bay Area to enjoy potions and tinctures. Um, yes. My friend made me a tincture that um, that that she she crafted under a full moon from flowers that I have been taking. And, you know, whether or not it's the flowers or whether or not it's the good intentions and love from my friend, I find it does wonders. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I don't know about potions. But. That's a whole world. Uh, yes, I'm sticking oh. to the tinctures myself because I, uh, I have some of the reishi. I have some of the mushroom tincture that I take, and you're supposed to put a little vitamin C, I guess, take a pill at the same time. So I've been doing that. You find I it works know. for you? I think so. Okay. It, uh, there, there is some altered bit of business there, maybe a little calmer or something. I'm not sure. You should sure. give it to Kevin in uh, whatever, apartment 3B. Yeah. I ought to slip it into it. a little bit of his Diet Coke there is what I should be doing. Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. But, uh, you know, as I approach this conversation and thinking about your work, which I will get to, but uh, I have been reading a great book, speaking of mushrooms, about the fungal networks that unite everything and really make life possible. And uh, I also uh, yesterday watched the UFO, uh, UFO documentary. Mm. And uh, the, the thrust of that thing, not to spoil it for anybody, but these aliens were trying to communicate to us that we should protect the Earth. That was their message all along. And uh, I, I thought that was kind of revelatory. So I'm thinking in both ways, the kind of pulsing uh, networks of uh, mycelium and the plants working hard to adapt to keep life going and the things that are way above us, these uh, extraterrestrials coming to prevent collapse, changing my perception of time uh, has helped me not focus on what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> on at the moment. I'm trying to grok everything at a different speed. And that made me also think about the work that you do because you take on the big and the small of it, don't you? I try to, at the very least. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things that struck me is how much of human history relies on these tiny moments, these little pivots, chance encounters, quirks of personality, whether it is uh, John Smith at Jamestown or the mm -hmm. architect going to see a pool in the backyard in Finland or a fashion icon, Bo Brummel. It's astounding how small actions affect the entire system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about this a lot. In the stories that I work on and also in my own reporting, I think so much of my process is um, kismet and who I'm, you know, who I meet and who I encounter. And that's one of the things that's, I mean, there are many things about this year of our Lord 2020 that I have found challenging and difficult. But one of them is that so much of my my practice involves reading books and watching movies and talking to people, just talking to people at parties. And that's a great way to assess, you know, what's already known, what's new to people, what's not new to people. Because as much as I would like to assume that I am the perfect litmus test for my own listener, like, I don't know. Sometimes I'll, I'll find something out that I think is super interesting and neat. And it, you know, is old news to everybody else. So um, that said, I just cannot tell you how many 
connections in my stories have come from, you know, being at a party and being like, hey, does anyone here know anything about Hawaiian shirts? And be like, oh, you know, my 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 uncle actually makes Hawaiian shirts in Hawaii. Here's his email address. You know, you should email him. And then one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. I think so much of like the work that you and I both make as audio people is um, for and by and about people and it's about connection and I think it's almost sacred that we get to um I don't know weave stories out from other stories and so yeah yeah so much of it is about chance encounters and little flukes of time and that's why I can't really get over all the ways I mean I want to say the connections that we're losing right now that we all stay inside but I think we're also gaining connections like I don't know. I don't know if we would have talked without this this time. And I've I've made interesting, strange, you know, Zoom connections in this moment <laughs> in history. So, you know, it's hard to keep it from happening. We are we are not unlike those little mycelia just reaching out all the time, trying to make connections. That's my point. Yes, yeah. that those things are con that exchange can't be stopped no matter where we are. Is really. uh, things are moving along that network and making connections for a reason, I would argue, although mm. I don't know what that reason is. <laughs> how much we're in charge of that or have agency over that is a large question. That's but, a whole uh, other kettle mm, of fish, yeah. Uh, tell me about it. Uh, <laughs> There may be several kettles of different kinds of fish. Anyhow, uh, it's so valuable uh, to have people come along and, and unravel though this history and remind us about not only the connections that exist, but that there is something kind of essential at the heart of things too, isn't there? In the mm. same way that if you try to find a perfect men's black shoe, <laughs> that that black shoe will be more expensive than any other shoe or a funky-looking black shoe. If it's essentially itself that thing then has more value to it. Maybe I'm getting a little off track, but the point is that it's remarkable, these investigations that you do to try and get at the heart of the thing. And I wonder about that specific impulse on your part uh, and, and, and many of us, all of us, to try and get to the thing that is the thing itself. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you also mentioned, you know, the big stories and the small stories, because when I'm working, when I'm grappling with a question or just turning something over in my mind, I think a lot about the experimental film by Charles and Ray Eames called Powers of Ten. Do you oh, know it? All the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We're constantly going up and down that ladder of the small to the big. But yes. Totally, totally. And I think about this in terms of storytelling all the time because so the film begins with a picture of a couple having a picnic in Chicago in the park. And it looks very normal. That's normal life. That's the surface of things. And then it dives um, kind of log logarithmically deeper and deeper and deeper into the man's hand, into his particles. And it's actually it's so fascinating. I was at a um, exhibit at the Oakland Museum of Art about Charles and Ray Eames, and they were showing preliminary drafts of that film. And it, I think the earliest draft was from like the 50s or something. So they didn't know what DNA was yet. So they were going like deeper and deeper. And then they were like getting, what did they call them? They were like donut shaped organelles. Like, what is this? Like, what are they? <laughs> what is this thing that they they think they've found? Um, so it goes all the way in, in, into the inner workings of his flesh and his DNA and his being. And then it zooms out, 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 back into the park. And then it zooms up, 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 out, 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 like out to Chicago, out to the United States, out to the world, out to the universe. And it's so interesting to think that if you take something 
and you can go in either direction, you know, like we can zoom in or or zoom out. Like, you know, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think like you can look around. I mean, one of the tricky things is everything has a question, right? You can look around you and um, like uh, so I have this mug that I've been drinking tea out of. I could zoom in and be like, what is it made of? How is it manufactured? Where does it come from? What is its supply chain? What is the demand of it? How many of these do they make? You know, like this kind of world of 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 the origin and the source and like maybe eventually find, you know, the clay that made this mug somewhere in uh, Ecuador. I don't know. Or I could zoom out, out, out into sort of the culture. Be like, when did we start using mugs? You know, why why did this become a mass-produced design? Was there a first mug? And also it has like a picture of like Kathy on it, and which is <laughs> right. like a perfect meta commentary on like the office and how the mug became the the symbol of, you know, office place niceties. So I just, you know, you can take any object and zoom in or out. And I think it's about not getting too lost in the sauce yeah. because this could yes. apply to any object. And I think it's about retaining a degree of like skepticism. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you had a Kathy mug at the ready too. Oh yes. <laughs> what a perfect, what a perfect <laughs> object. <laughs> Again, it's like essentially it's thing, isn't it? I it mean, truly. that is as mug as you can get. <laughs> 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 it is the muggiest mug. You're right. I was like, why am I so attracted to the? It's my favorite mug. I'm always carrying it around. And you're right. It's the muggiest mug. <laughs> it is. Well, do you find a personal comfort in knowing the origins of things or knowing that the origins of things exist? Mm. I don't know if I'd call I I find it fascinating. I don't know if I'd call it a comfort because there are so many ways in which understanding the life and the history of things are really distressing in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, this is the great American, uh, what do we call this in a recent episode? The great American plot twist is one, like everything is racist. Everything is corrupt. Um, I was, I did this series about fashion called articles of interest. And of course, so many of the roads led back to slavery, like across every nation, across every kind of cloth, across every kind of textile, the history of, harvesting cotton, dying and cultivating indigo, like you name it. Even now, modern fast fashion, it's like, cool, great. I, that does not, that is not a comfort to me. Same with a number of stories I've done about waste and garbage and just seeing where that goes and where that ends up and why we generate so much trash. It's not something that's inherent to being human. It's something that's been imposed on us by industry. And so I think while these are not necessarily comforts. They are good and important to know and interrogate and be aware of, even though honestly, quite often, more often than not, they are a source of stress than comfort. Okay. <laughs> well, well, then how about uh, this, the pursuit, though? How about mm. this, uh, this idea, this interrogation? Uh, does that uh, uh, provide something to you? Is that part of your uh, makeup? I read somewhere that you identified as a lonely kid. Did oh. that mean that you were misunderstood? Did that mean that uh, you were an only child? What was behind that? Oh, well, I have, a, I, have a, I have a sister, and she's great. And I have a great family. We get along really, really well. I love them a lot. But I think I was always just kind of like a tiny 30-year-old, um, you know, like going to parties, 
I just it's like, what do children talk about? Like, well, hello, fellow children. Like, I just didn't like. I didn't understand how to how to party, and I didn't understand how to be chill. It's something I've really only learned in quarantine. Like, ah, yes, like having a drink and watching TV and like softening your eyes and not thinking about much. This has merit. I am enjoying this. Um, but I think, yeah. So I I wasn't. I had a lot of support and a lot of love in my life, and my parents definitely um were encouraged that in me my parents met working in radio so they were big believers in staying informed and talking to people and i remember my my dad would read every single new york paper every single day and he's always like it's important to be informed it's important to know what's going on yeah. and they were always taking us to museums and you know i was like making all these connections in my little tiny peanut brain and so i think i always was very aware of like the wider world of ideas and the ways that we are all touching each other i mean i very distinctly touching each other you know consensually i remember um going to Disney World uh, on a family trip and my dad, you know, pointed at the Epcot Dome and was like, you know, that's Buckminster Fuller. It was just like, whoa, like all these <laughs> concepts and these designs and these these things that my family nerds out about. These are very applicable, directly applicable to my life. And so it's a really great, good uh, stroke of luck that I ended up at 99% Invisible, which is about this, is about the right. hidden world of ideas and the ways that um, designers and creators truly and larger forces craft the world around us. Um, so it was just kind of a natural fit. That's uh, terrific. And how fortunate that you did end up there. I, I know I also identified as a kind of a lonely kid. And the, the idea of uh, sort of searching out these things, again, looking for those points of yes. connection, helped me to become a little bit larger than myself and allowed me to then have conversations and to be fluent in a world of ideas that yes. then built other connections from there. So if you're in the conversation and they bring up even with travel or something, yes, I have been there. Oh, I know that place. I have a picture of what you're talking about. Or I know that subject matter, just like Power of Ten. Not everybody knows that film, but you see, uh, and we could connect on that. And I yeah. know exactly what you mean. And I, it, it helps to feed me. And I too had a subscription to Time Magazine very early on. <laughs> or National Geographic, whatever the things yes. were. And to understand that time moves in such a way. And yes. if you pay attention to these characters, they keep going. And you can see that they're going to end up somewhere because they enter into this narrative. Anyway. Uh, yes. It's so <laughs> transcendent. It's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. And it's funny because I think there's so much shame that we carry. Well... Simultaneously an obsession and a shame that I think Americans carry around being known. You know, there's this obsession and this desire, especially now, this year, to like be seen, to be observed, to be an influencer, to like whatever, try to make money through your Instagram or your Twitter. And it gets this kind of um, shallow reputation. But really, like putting yourself out there and making your interests and desires known in the world is so beautiful and so powerful and allows you to really like commune with the wider world of ideas that you read about and see about and hear about. And I wish there was a word, I guess that would be renown, but I don't know. There's something to being in, in, 
And it's one of my favorite things about being a writer and being a podcaster is getting to put ideas out there in the world and hearing people respond to them and yes. responding in turn. It's like this beautiful conversation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, I mean, it's uh, making me a little bit emotional just thinking about that because some of us are toiling away or just not even toiling, just doing the thing uh, without any kind of real recognition or feedback all the time, a little bit here and there. But the fact is, regardless of that, there's still these very powerful conversations that are happening <laughs> and uh, moving me forward as a better person in yes. the world. So whatever tiny little role I can play, yes. uh, then it's it's feeding me. Um and hopefully I put that back out into yes. the universe as well. Well, uh, uh, let us speak then of one other area of mutual connection, which you mentioned already, which is San Francisco. Ah, uh, yes. Oh. Wait, I have, to t I have to tell you something very embarrassing. Okay. My laptop is running low on battery, so let me just try to plug it in quick because I don't want to yes. get cut off while we're talking no, about okay, it. No, okay, okay. One moment. Uh, Absolutely. I'm so sorry, as you know, as we get to talking about San Francisco, I just moved to New York and I don't really know where all the power outlets are in my sublet yet. So I had to do a little <laughs> bit of searching there. That's okay. It was very real. So real. Verite. <laughs> yes. Like the Maisels brothers all of a sudden. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, tell me about your time in San Francisco, a place we both spent a little bit of uh, our lives in. How long were you there? Six years or so. Mm. Yeah. How old were you? How old was I? Yeah. Uh, 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 a, a young person just out of school, uh, 20s, I guess. Early 20s? Yes, yeah. that's about right. Yes. Early to yeah. mid 20s was spent there. A good time to be in San Francisco, by the totally, by. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. That's around when I was there, too. I moved there when I was 22. Yeah. And, um, I think it's very tender, the city you give your 20s to. It really, especially when it's a place as already sort of inherently magical as the Bay Area. You know, yes. I'm already finding myself, you know, I just moved a couple months ago, but it already is just playing in the sepia-toned nostalgia film in my mind. I can imagine taking the Enjuta all the way out to the end and hopping out and oh. there's the Pacific just roiling there. And I mean, it was... It was a total dream. I lived in Oakland, so yes. San Francisco still was kind of this uh, fairy tale land that I didn't go to very often. But of course, now that it's gone, I'm like, why didn't I go there all the time? I could have <laughs> could have learned how to surf or something. I could have been a real Californian. That's but no, right. it was like the most amazing, most amazing place to spend one's early to mid-20s. Yes. Uh, when I sat down to gather some thoughts for this conversation, I happened to put on that San Francisco song by Scott McKenzie. You know, if you're going to San Francisco, oh, yes. put a flower in your hair. Now, I don't have any real affinity for that song. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of came, came on. But uh, as you kind of indicated, it just made me tear up a little to think about the promise of that place. Again, not quite a utopia, but a place where anything is possible, a place where you could walk from the mission to the hate through Golden Gate Park and kind of dissolve into the fog and reemerge as something else entirely. Oh, stop. Place... You're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really magical uh, uh, place, and I have only fond feelings of it. Now, this probably won't uh, surprise you, but the last time I did live in a commune was when I was in West Oakland. Ah. Yes. How many people was it? Too many. <laughs> ah. 
<laughs> yes, uh, an odd band of group of people there, that's for sure, artisans and the like. Um, uh, but uh, the, Oakland is terrific. It was right there on, uh, what is it, San Pablo. Oh, is where wow. I was. Wow, wow. San Pablo and what? Mm, like uh, nah. off of West Grand, <laughs> like 27th. Okay, okay, okay. Lovely. Near, there was a giant burger there right across the street. I know where you're talking about. Yes, yeah. I learned the bass line to every single song that was popular <laughs> in the late 90s, early 2000s living there. Oh, wow. That was a bit, I mean, it was a weird time to live there more yes. recently because um, it didn't feel, I mean, it was extremely corporate and extremely strange. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of very, very visible inequity. A lot of uh, encampments for people who didn't have anywhere to sleep, like huge, sprawling cities within the city. And it was pretty crazy how people were like, oh, this is fine. You know, this is okay. Yeah. Or, I mean, worse, they would, you know, be like, this is not okay. Let's get, let's, let's, let's forcibly remove everybody. It was, it was, there was a lot of turmoil yeah. all the time. And um, it was very troubled in a way that was very fascinating. And I am so curious. In a weird way, I feel like I left the, you know, I put down the book in the middle of the story. I'm so mm -hmm. curious to know how it will emerge on the other side of COVID and it, what this will mean for the many problems that plague the Bay Area. Because I feel like New York is always gonna be New York. You know, things are opening and closing and things are churning over all the time. And that's Part just the way the nature. city goes, baby. Yeah. But yeah. like. San Francisco operates in these chapters and like that was a chapter that I was in and that yes. chapter is closing yeah, or so I, it seems maybe everyone thinks that the city they spent their 20s in was like a chapter I don't know no no I think there's something very <laughs> uh, very uh, specific about San Francisco that happens in these eras and where yeah. a, a certain group of people or a kind of searcher of some kind goes to that city and then comes out different. You can go there and completely reinvent yourself. Yeah. And people go there seeking fame and fortune and that kind of thing in its own weird way. But mostly it's because they're wanting a shift within their person. And uh, that's a very peculiar kind of thing to be known for and to be the container for <laughs> yeah. as a city, I think. No, no, it's different than any other place I've lived. And I've lived in Los Angeles and Minneapolis and New York. And, and that's, that's a it's a peculiar thing that happens there, but uh, and I think I was there at the the prologue to whatever chapter you were in, right yeah. as tech was happening, because there was the first bubble, and then you thought it was going to go away, but then it came back stronger. And anyway, right. But still, still, a beautiful place, and one of the great places to be. And I understand you were a biker. Uh, you rode the bike a lot. Yes, very much. Yeah. Very and, much. And are there some just some just tell me because I miss it so much. Are there some favorite haunts that you had that you think of now that you're in New York? I mean, I don't I think a lot of them were a lot of them have shut down. Did you ever go to Oddball Cinema? I, I know of it, yes, but I didn't go there, I don't think. Oddball Cinema was a great one. That was yeah. a really special place to go. Yeah. The new Parkway Cinema. Loved going to the movies. Yeah, um, clearly. <laughs> clearly. Uh, many debaucherous nights at the Ruby Room. That was a wild okay. place to go. Yeah, it was, we go. Uh, it was really fun. <laughs> it was really, really fun. Sutra baths. Oh, to imagine them in their glory. 
That's what oh, you would go God. there and just think, God, what was this like? How did I miss that part of history? I know, I know. Why hasn't know. anybody remade that? Gosh. You know, it was interesting. I was at a podcast conference last year in Australia, and they had these basins that would fill naturally with salt water from the ocean, and you could just swim in them. And that was the first moment. It was like, oh, this is what Sutro Baths was like. We could have had this. This is amazing. And they have it all along the coast because they have really strong tides, but lovely, lovely seawater. It's like a brilliant idea, and I don't know why we just we're like, well, that didn't work and scrapped it. Like, let's bring it back. Yes, yes, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's my commune. My commune is to bring back uh, saltwater bathing. The, the, All right, the, that, I, there are some things I can get behind. Okay, see, I knew by the end of this we'd get you turned around. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, my uh, last question here, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Uh, your thoughts on post-pandemic fashion? Oh, oh, it's going to be so fun. It's yeah. going to be so fun. We are yearning for it. We are aching for it in yeah. a way that people like to say they don't care about fashion. And they do. They totally do. Even if they're not like they don't care about design, they might not care about designers. They might not care about trends. Yeah. But if someone gives you a shirt, yeah. you're going to assess like this is me or this is not me. It's all about wanting to be seen. And right. we all have this intense desire to be seen by each other right now. And yep. we are going to peacock at <laughs> the end of this. I hope. I hope. I think I, it's, hope. I just ordered a very unusual pair of green derby shoes for myself. Ooh. So uh, peacocking is underway. That's <laughs> I'm ready for it. Bold, tasteful so colors. Still with the comfortable pants. I don't mind. This is oh, yeah. a nice, nice adjustment. This is the best of all worlds. I think people are going to be into comfort. I bought my first pair of sweatpants. It's like I'm wearing yoga pants right now, something I thought would never happen. Yes. But like they've got merit. It's totally worth it. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's terrific. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing what everybody's doing on the other side of everything. And uh, I hope that we get a chance to meet in person. But this conversation has been just lovely, and I appreciate it so much. So, so thank you for being here. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. That was really, really fun. Of course. And uh, thank you for all of your good work that you're doing. It's really terrific. And it, it rewards the curious among us. And uh, even just it has changed the way I think about things to be reminded of that, to go macro and to small, even though I may be you know, tempted to do that. Anyhow, it still is a good reminder that there's multiple ways to look at things. Now, is there any subjects or, or things coming up that uh, you, you want to let people know about? Hmm. Do you keep a That's... journal of things where you, you start getting on these investigations and you're like, oh, wait, come back to put a pin in that and come back to oh, that? Oh, yeah. Thing. I've got like five things churning in my mind at all times, but I yeah. think they're all going to be on the Cut podcast by or early, by the end of this year or early next year. All right. So, yeah. Good. We'll look forward to it. Thank all you. right, Avery. Thanks you so much. Oh, that was so great. So great. Uh, a, a balm for weary times. My thanks to Avery for joining me for talking process and thinking about the world the way she does. And who knows, if you're a lonely kid out there, get to know some stuff. Go places. Get lost in the fog and find yourself over and over again. Future conversations will be bright. And go buy yourself something nice, too. You, should, you deserve a little peacocking. 
I know my listeners, and they're ready for it. Well, if you'd like to listen to Avery's podcasting efforts, as I said, tune into The Cut. Find uh, episodes of Nice Try and articles of interest via Avery's website, AveryTruffleman.com, or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the same places you'll find us. It's all there. Well, that will do it for us this week. Till next time, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is produced and performed by James Bewley. Season theme song by Mariam Cadus of Space Moth. Season podcast icon by Philippa Beleza. Incidental music heard throughout the program by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm in Ohio. Remember to rate and review the program on Apple Podcasts or tune in and stream the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Pandora, or Stitcher, wherever you find fine audio content. To see any of our live shows or other short videos, visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Radio, and follow us on Instagram at Seaver is the handle. Thanks again for listening, and remember this season to keep your portals open and at a safe distance.